Hello, everyone, and welcome to UConn 360. I don't even know what episode this is. 104. 104. It, it's, time is relative. It's, it's a meaningless concept to us now. But we are coming to you from the beautiful Lakeside Building in Storrs, Connecticut. This is our studio. We should come up with a clever name for the studio. S- studio Husk. I don't know. That's not I a clever nothing. name. But my name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. And joining me as always, my colleague, Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you? Hi, Tom. It's been a minute. It has been a little while. And we've got a very special episode. I think every episode is special at this point because we only do one a month. But <laughs> Well, I think we're at an even lower average right now. But w- yes. We have a guest who we're both very familiar with. Yes. And who, if you've ever seen anything that the university has put out in print or online, you've probably seen this person's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more about that anon. First, I want to jump into the the news. Because a, yeah. lot, a lot's happened. Yes, we do always have lots of news, but some recent items we wanted to highlight. I wanted to give a shout out to two undergraduates who recently received some prestigious national and international awards, which we keep racking up, which is always fun here. Sarah Mars, a music composition and vocal performance major in the School of Fine Arts, who is graduating in 2023, has been named UConn's sixth Marshall Scholar. The Marshall Scholarship Program began in 1953 and allows talented young Americans the chance to study any academic subject at UK universities of their choice. Mars is a Holster Scholar here at UConn. She composed an original song cycle about the Salem Witch Trials. She's president and co-founder of the UConn Composer Ensemble Collaboration. She sings with the Chamber Singers and is assistant conductor of Festival Chorus. And this past summer, she received a UConn Idea Grant for her project, Let Us Sing Contemporary Art Songs for Young Singers. And she plans to pursue her master's degree in composition. And then another congratulations is in order for Nidhi Nair, who's an honors student majoring in economics and mathematics statistics, also graduating this spring. And she is UConn's first Schwartzman Scholar. This scholarship program was started in 2016 and aims to bring together students from around the world to explore and understand the economic, political, and cultural factors that have contributed to China's increasing importance as a global power and train them to forge effective links between China and the rest of the world. Nair is passionate about boosting socioeconomic mobility through the lens of public economics and educational disparities, and she also has a long list of impressive credentials, but we just wanted to congratulate both of them. Yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations. Once again, more students who make me realize how little I did with my undergraduate experience. <laughs> I did nothing. It's really pathetic. How sparse my accomplishments were. No, congratulations. That's Past awesome. Past tense? Just kidding. Hey, <laughs> zing. Well, we also have some institutional knowledge. Knowledge. We, we, do we don't have, have any of that. Knowledge. We don't have any of that. <laughs> we have in this room a lot of institutional we do. knowledge. We do. Right now. We have some institutional news. A few weeks ago, President Radinka Merrick announced in a letter to the Yukon community that Yukon will be working with the state. The federal government, donors, industry, and international partners to reduce the university's carbon footprint to carbon neutral by 2030. That's seven years from now. Well, well, depending on when you're listening to this, I guess it could be a year or it could be in the past. I don't know when you're listening to this. (laughs) You think people are going to be listening to back episodes in seven years? I think historians who are writing our biographies. Yeah. Yep, the our man, biographies. The many yep. biographies. Not, yeah. not writing about the university, but they want to know about us. Because exactly. we will by then have conquered the world. Yes. Mm-hmm. We're going to turn those lack of accomplishments as undergraduates around. <laughs> um, carbon neutral by 2030. Specifics on the vision, goals, and targets for various initiatives will be outlined in a comprehensive sustainability action plan to be released in the spring. There's already a lot of work being done on sustainability all over the university, but the commitment effectively turns UConn into a living laboratory to develop and demonstrate new approaches to mitigating climate change's harmful effects. So yeah, it's exciting that we're making a bold goal, you know, and committed to meeting it. So speaking of bold and ambitious, our guest 
uh, as someone who I've got to know over the, the 10 years that I've been at UConn, someone we, we mentioned institutional knowledge, who has a lot of institutional knowledge and has, I think, one of the most fascinating jobs at the University of Connecticut. Julie, who, who is our guest? Well, first, I want to say that before we started recording, he told me that I should introduce him as sitting in for Ken Best as the <laughs> crotchety, grumpy old man in this episode. But no, we have Peter Moranis, who is the official university photographer of the past 27 years. So as Tom said, you have seen his work in UConn Magazine on UConn Today and any number of publications that the university has done, advertisements, brochures, et cetera, et cetera. And he has a wealth of fascinating stories and is just a wonderful person in general. So welcome, Pete. Hey, thanks, Julie. Good to be with you, Tom. You know, I've done all those things, and I haven't yet had a photo on a milk carton, but I have had photos on ice cream cartons. You'll remember that when <laughs> oh, we had yeah. the Yukon ice cream, the illustrations were drawn from my photos. Oh, wow. That's pretty nice. Not every photographer can say that, that they've been adorning ice cream cartons. Milk carton would be kind of fun. It would be kind of fun. <laughs> well, wouldn't that usually mean like – was a missing child. No, it could be like the logo. <laughs> why, why does your mind go to that instantly? Because I was born in the 80s could, and there's a book called The Face It could be like a carton. sunrise over Horse Barn Hill. That could be the photo on the milk carton. Have you never heard of that horrifying book about missing children? I, I have. That's just not the first place I went to. It's Very the holidays, Julie. Jeez, I'm sorry. Dark and twisted. I want to know how you got here, Pete, because that in itself, every story you tell is fascinating. But how did you end up here at UConn taking pictures? Okay, so I'll try to walk you through this. For everybody that doesn't want to hear this story, fast forward about 20 minutes and come back to the podcast <laughs> and we'll get into we, it. We try to only stick to about 30-minute uh, episodes, Peter. So TikTok. Okay, so as I was saying, the story started at Cornell University where I was a staff photographer there. And to be honest – I wasn't having an awful lot of fun. I mean, it's a really inspiring place, you know, Ivy League, all that, but I really wasn't enjoying it. And one of my coworkers had come out here to uh, UConn, and uh, her husband was interviewing for a job for a – he was looking for a postdoc, I guess. And it turns out it was with our departed but a very famous researcher, Jerry Yang, who had cloned the cow there, Aspen. So anyways, so they came out, decided not to get the job. Cheryl told me about the job. I applied. I honestly thought that I'd come to Connecticut for two or three years and then go back <laughs> to New York. Well, you see how that's worked, huh? Maybe I'll get to go there when I retire. Or maybe not. Who knows? We'll see. We like having you here, Pete. So when you came here 27 years ago, it was sort of on the cusp of big changes in photography. What was it like when you – did you have a dark room when you came here? Were you shooting on film? How did you make the transition to digital? Oh, goodness, yes. Over the, uh, the span of my career, I really kind of started at the serious, serious old school ways and have now been along all the way to the new technology. So when I started – actually, this is kind of trippy. When I started taking pictures for the Syracuse Post Standard in 1985, here was the drill. I put a roll of – black and white film into my manual camera, snap, snap. I'd go find a typewriter, and I had a manual typewriter. I would type out the captions, put the film and the captions in an envelope, and then go to the Greyhound bus station and hand the film to the driver. I had no idea you could, you could make shipments this way. 
Yeah, so I would uh, mail a film to uh, Syracuse by bus or alternately if the New York Times was my client that day, I'd tell them, no, bring it to Port Authority and then call somebody at the darkroom of either of those places to say, hey, I got some film coming up in an hour or two. You go and send somebody over to the bus station to get it. Thanks. <laughs> then fast forward way till today, you know, it snowed here last night in Connecticut. So I went out on campus extra early and took pictures of – you know, like snow on the sign at the south end of campus, the lights, holiday lights wrapped around some trees near Mirror Lake and went over and saw the Husky Dog statue and then just happened to see a little bit of pink in the sky, went up to the top of campus, photographed the sun coming up behind that big, beautiful, shiny metal sign and then drove to my parking spot where I park every morning and sent all my photos to the person that does the university's social media from my phone. No and Greyhound you know, bus needed. No, no, I didn't need the bus at all. Although I did see Peter Pan bus go by uh, once <laughs> while I was sitting there. Yeah. But I didn't need to wave the guy down and say, oh, dude, dude, I got some film here. Hold on. <laughs> yeah. And you were done by about 7 a.m., right? Yeah, and it's like, you know, I felt like, ooh, I've already worked a day, and it's like 7.45, it's amazing. But you've interacted with a lot of fascinating people. Obviously, we have a lot of really cool visitors to campus, famous people. What is a favorite story that sticks out about one of these individuals photographing hmm. them? That's a hard one, but I, I come back to uh, commencement 1998. George Bush Sr. was giving the address that year. And uh, before the commencement procession, you know, all the uh, – you know, the president and the trustees and the faculty will all get together and put on their uh, gowns, find the mace, find the necklace, all that stuff, get ready, probably eat some donuts, drink some coffee, talk. And uh, it was running a little bit late. George Bush steps in and he's not at all interested in talking to any of the VIPs <laughs> in the room. He talks to the people from catering. He then talks to the cops. Then he talks to the f couple of people from the fire department that are in the room. Then he sees me standing in the corner with my uh, student assistant. So he comes on over and thrusts out his hand and says, oh, hi, I'm George Bush. How are you? <laughs> oh, good to meet you. Hey, you know, boys, I see that you both have cameras. So if you'd like photos with me. You, he could take your picture and then you could <laughs> take his picture. And I'm like – Hey, you know, yeah. a former leader of the free world says snapshots, you know, hey, <laughs> we are down with that. So I, I snap uh, Rich's photo, and then Rich is pointing the camera at me. And then I'm not going to name this university official because he might listen to the podcast. <laughs> but I get the I'm going to kill you look, shaking finger, and I can see the lips being mouthed like, Marinus, what are you doing? <laughs> And so I have this great photo of me looking sheepish standing next to George Bush because at exactly the moment that it was clicked, I'm being told, what are you doing? You're ruining commencement, man. <laughs> Did commencement go off as planned? Oh, he gave a great talk and it was, <laughs> it was lovely. I was there for that actually because my brother graduated that year. Oh, yeah. that's funny. Was yeah. I still looking sheepish by that point? <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't remember any big delay or commencement being ruined, so I don't think your your photo op with the you president. Have to dig that up for us so that we can, yeah we can post it. When I worked in the Associated Press, there was a photographer I worked with a lot, named Chuck Burton, and he once told me, "There's no such thing as a bad camera. There's only bad photographers." Today, anyone who has an iPhone has a very sophisticated camera, but there are a lot of bad photos out there. As a photographer, what kind of mistakes do people make when they take pictures? The first one, not standing close enough. 
look at what's in the picture. It's the way I, I suggest that uh, new uh, student photographers approach any kind of photo. Look at the people that you're taking the picture of. Look at the background separately from the people. Then move you and the subject so that you have the background you want and the foreground you want. And you don't have anything in the photo that you didn't want in the photo. It's amazing when you get snapshots from your friends how like there's cans of soda, there's trees <laughs> sticking out of somebody's head. You know. Oh, God, every picture I take is like that. <laughs> nah, that's the – take two steps closer, your photos will be better. Interesting. That's a good tip. It is. So that's pretty basic advice, but you are known, at least around here, as being pretty into the technology side of things. You've done some interesting things to get the photos that you have in your head. You, I, I always found it fascinating when I worked at The Current that photographers introduced me for the first time to the term making photographs instead of taking photographs, which many of us laymen say. So can you tell us a story or two about some of the more, I don't know, crazy rigs that you've had to create to get the photos? Oh, sure. I got no end of stories like this. So once again, fast forward 20 minutes on the podcast. Now, coming back to this, I have this theory about still photography these days, particularly, and it goes like this. We're all very much attuned to looking at TikTok on our phone, watching YouTube videos. So I think that a still photo really has to be incredibly dynamic to stand above the noise. So probably a good example of this was Oh, I don't know, uh, six or seven years ago. It's a Friday afternoon, and uh, my colleague, who also does some photos for the department, Sean Flynn, rings me on the phone and says, Hey, Pete, you want to come up to campus with me on Saturday and take pictures of the skydiving team as they're landing on campus? And I was a little gruff, as I tend to be sometimes. I'm like, no, I don't want to come up to campus and photograph that. You get me on the airplane, and I'll do it. Hang up the phone. 20 minutes later, it's like, oh, yeah, be up the Ellington Airport at 930 <laughs> on a Saturday, and you can take photos of the uh, skydiving team. It's like, okay, great. So I go up to the airport and meet the pilot and meet the uh, students that will be jumping out of the plane. And just about before we take off, the pilot grabs me by the arm and says, hey, come over here. you got to do this first. And he hands me one of the Yukon parachutes. I'm like, what? I'm taking pictures from inside the airplane. Why do I need a parachute? And his response was, in case you fall out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, how the heck would this happen? Hey, fun fact. If you're jumping out of an airplane intentionally for parachuting, they push the plane down. So it's descending probably at something approaching 9.8 meters per second squared, right? So – Relative to the ground, you there's not a lot of gravity holding you in place. That's why he was worried about me falling out because all of a sudden we got into this position where like there's no gravity holding my butt to the <laughs> to the mat inside of the plane. But I got to wear that cool parachute. If you see it, like photos, there's a photo of it yeah. on one of the buses. You got and really it has, cool pictures. And it has Yukon embroidered on the side of the parachute. I got to wear the embroidered parachute, <laughs> and I am really glad that I did not fall out of the airplane. Yeah. I have no inch. I like riding in airplanes. Like I said, riding in airplanes, flying in airplanes, not flying out of airplanes. <laughs> you got to wear the embroidered Yukon parachute, but you didn't have to use the embroidered Yukon parachute. Exactly. No, that was that was an awful lot of fun. Yeah, I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily expect those kinds of opportunities as a university photographer, like everyone will, the commencement, things like that. But there's all kinds of different things that you get to do 
probably like a news photographer, like all kinds of different challenges and things like that. What, what stands out to you as something that you didn't expect to be doing? Hmm. That's an interesting question, Tom. So yeah, I will just uh, take a step back and say, you know, I tend to think of myself as the photographer for the newspaper of 35,000 really bright people. (laughs) And that would be Yukon and the chronicler of the days at Yukon. You know, every day I wake up and I try to think, what can I do that's slightly different? Now, I'll say that this was not exactly to the point of your question, but the very, very beginning of my photographic career, I took a photo for the Syracuse Post Standard of a little kid getting a ski lesson. Now, fast forward a few years to, what, two years ago, and I decided, oh, wouldn't it be great to have some photos of the Yukon ski team out racing? I've watched an awful lot of ski racing on television, and I've actually been to a few in person, but I've never pointed a camera at this. It is, I'm going to tell you, outrageously difficult to photograph Mm. because imagine this, okay? You're on the side of the slope, and they're coming past you. They're going 30 to, you know, this like college racers. They're going 30 to 50 miles per hour. When I photographed a little kid on the bunny slope uh, getting a ski lesson, I could walk faster than they were skiing. So it was no problem keeping up with this. The trick for uh, taking the pictures of uh, people doing a giant slalom racing is it's really hard to point the camera at them and get it to focus because they're moving somewhere in the space of 40 feet per second. There's some tricks involved. I talked to some people at Nikon and figured out that what I really needed to do was be able to point the camera at the person for a second, second and a half before I took the photo. And that worked great for me. But I still don't know how you see those great photos of, you know, racers like Michaela Schifrin and there's like bright blue sky behind her and she's coming down the slope. I have no idea how to take that picture because I wouldn't have had the second and a half to get the camera in focus. Well, it came out great. That was in a Yukon magazine, right? Yes, it was. Very cool. Do you have any more photo questions or can I ask another Pete, just Pete Marinas question? Ask a Pete Marinas because I have a Pete Marinas question I want to ask after you do. I want to know what your favorite K-pop band is. <laughs> hmm. I, th- I think I'd go old school and say 2 p.m., although I will tell you that I was uh, – walking around the office humming a BTS the other day because we keep on saying BTS, meaning behind the scenes in the office. Uh. And every time I hear that, I'm like, I'm humming BTS. At Thanksgiving, I was at my brother's house, my 11-year-old niece, because of her, her love for BTS, has very strong opinions about the South Korean government's conscription policies. Oh, my God. Hmm. <laughs> because, as you know, the BTS members, they all to be in the Army. Oh. So she's not happy about Didn't that. Didn't know that. Yeah. Not a big. I don't know much about BTS. I'm not up on my BTS. Yeah, you wouldn't think an 11 year old in no. upstate New York would have a lot of opinions. Hey, there's a lot of ways for people um, to become informed. It's true. Yeah, 21 months, man. 21 months. Yeah, it's no joke. Wow. One of my favorite, lesser known Peter Moreno's facts is that you, when you were in college, were one of your fellow students was none other than Mick Foley, <gasps> famed pro wrestler. Yeah, that was kind of uh, trippy (laughs) because at the time he just came off as crazy rather than outrageously talented. So I used to have a a show on 
the, the radio station WSUC, which is the, uh, the student radio station. <laughs> that wasn't thought out very well. <laughs> Actually, uh, that's yet another story we won't tell right now, but that was their third choice for call letters, and that was meant to be bad. Okay. Oh, and okay. unfortunately, that's what they ended up with. <laughs> but yeah, Mick was, we were both communications majors, so we were in the same uh, classes frequently, and he had a show on the radio station immediately before mine. But like, sometimes he wouldn't show up for radio shows on a Monday because he was out wrestling on a Saturday or Sunday and kind of got beat up. Wow. And yeah, everybody on the radio station, oh, that dude's got a screw loose. <laughs> and now we're all like, hey, so proud. Dude. <laughs> Used it to his advantage. <clears throat> to, to know him. But yeah, that's... I don't know much about BTS, but I do know Mick Foley. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. New York Times bestselling author, Is Mick he? Foley. Yeah, wow. yeah, his autobiography. My brother was a big WWF fan back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Pete, you're the best. Thank you for coming on, Pete. Hey, thanks. This was a hoot. Anytime, man. If you need it, another grumpy old man to talk in the microphone. If people out there in listener land want to see some of your work, what's the best way for them to do it? Ready for this? Mm-hmm. Magazine.yukon.edu. There it is. All right. Thank you, Pete. I'll be in the other room humming or singing the modern just low enough <laughs> that, you know, you that someone will hear it. Yeah. Don't notice it. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, so I mean, I feel like we, we got some history from uh, Pete could give it a Yukon sure yeah. history. Pete's history corner. That's what people want to hear. They He's don't want to hear. witnessed quite a bit. They don't want to hear this garbage from me. But I've got some, I've got some history. Got some garbage. Got some garbage. Maybe a little bit. Well, not quite literally. You know, sometimes I go go way way back in Yukon history, like eighteen eighties. Mm-hmm. This one this one goes back even further. Oh, so the everyone knows the Homer Babbage Library. Mm-hmm. I would presume everyone knows. If you don't, you I don't know how you graduated. Yeah, you might not have gone here. And of course, that wasn't the first mm-hmm. library. Wilbur Cross wasn't even the first library. But you know, Homer Babbage, although it's the quote unquote new location, there's a lot there's a lot that's been going on there over the years. Let's let's go back forty thousand years. <laughs> Okay. About 10 to 25 feet below where the library is, there is a peat bog. Yes. It consists of leaf mulch, pollen, flattened twigs, and silty clay. How many feet? 10 to 25 feet. And radiocarbon dating has established that it's been there for about 39,700 years. Wow. And at the time that it was being formed as a bog, the area around stores was a lushly forested wilderness watered by numerous springs and rivers. And this landscape was basically scraped away by the Laurentide ice sheet about 20,000 years ago. What is the definition of a bog? Do we know? I'm sure there is one. (laughs) I want to look it up. Look it up. Hold on. This is an Irish person. I don't know what a bog is. That's pretty depressing. I know, right? Disappointing. I just want to know what the the official... I'm I'm a fake Irish person. What do you mean you're a fake Irish person? I don't know what a bog is. Oh, you're actually Irish, though. Okay, this is very, very basic. Oh, it's also a British slang for bathroom. (laughs) Wet, muddy ground, too soft to support a heavy body. A peat bog. So that's confusing because they built a a giant library on top of it. Yeah, a a bog is a wetland that accumulates peat as a deposit of dead plant materials. That's a much better description than the one that came up on my Google. It's one of four main types of wetlands. Other names for bogs include mire, mosses, quagmire, and muskeg. Quagmire, boy. Called the library quagmire or something like that. <laughs> I kind of wonder what a quagmire was because I've heard it in, like, I usually hear it when people talk about Vietnam, the well, Vietnam isn't War. Isn't it usually like used as a synonym for like a, a conundrum sort of? Yeah, like a disaster that you can't yeah. extricate yourself from easily. Yeah. I guess it makes sense that it would be a bog. Yeah. But yeah, so when the, the last, well, actually, Ice. 
ice, ice age. age. Technically, we're still in the ice age. This is just an interglacial period. But when the ice sheet receded, <laughs> semantics. semantics. You, and you can actually, if you ever took Geology 102 with Randy Steinen here at UConn, he would take you all over campus and show you like things that had been left by the receding glaciers. I remember going to Gurleyville Road and there's like some anomalies there and it explains mm-hmm. how they were formed by retreating glaciers, that kind of thing. So cool. it's basically a giant like wall of ice dragging everything away. That's so it's wild. So, but it left the bog and the, the, the layer of wetlands was gradually covered over by other deposits. Mm-hmm. But in the 1990s, when Homer Babbage was being renovated and as a student at the time in the 1990s, I remember very well the renovation of Homer <laughs> Babbage because it took years and it was covered by blue tarp the whole time. Crews who were working on it discovered this bog and geology students were able to come and dig and wow. find something and they named it Babbage Bog. How clever. So yeah, next time you're at the Babbage Library, about 10 feet below, well, I guess if you're on the fourth floor, it's more than that, but let's <laughs> say you're on the ground floor, 10 feet below, 10 to 25 feet below, there's a, a prehistoric bog with all kinds of interesting plant life preserved. So yeah, because this, uh, this area was very different. We need to get Thor to talk about the bog. Yeah. Yeah. He's very into the bog. There's something about a diaper. Didn't they Didn't they say the tarp was like a diaper? Oh, maybe. It lo- I mean, it was it was pretty unsightly. unsightly. <laughs> yeah. It was the blue tarp. It was there like my whole time as an undergraduate. Yeah. It finally came off my senior year like That's at the end. Bummer. Why would they use blue? Like... At least get something that like blends in a little bit better. Oh, by the way, if you're listening, there's an urban legend that the reason they had to do um, renovations is because when they designed it, they didn't account for the weight of the books. That's not true. No, that's just an urban legend at every every, library in the world. Yeah, every library has had that urban legend. Yeah, it was just it was extremely poorly designed. You you told me that. You you burst my bubble about Um, that. Yeah, I believe there was a court case. But anyway, it's nice now. It's beautiful now. You should go to the library. I go there all the time. Well. I hope this was salutary for everybody. And you've learned about bogs. Learned about bogs. You've learned about Peter. You've learned about Peter. Yeah. This has been a big, uh, big episode. This is our last episode of 2022. Yeah. I don't know when you're listening to it. It could be summer of 2023, in which case I don't know what you're doing with your life. <laughs> but we want to encourage this. We want people to listen to us. We do. We, we have a, a fun slate of, of stuff planned for the, the new year. And uh, there's a lot going on at UConn as always. So. Always. We're not going to plug our Twitter anymore. No, I it's just, yeah, no, it's. <laughs> I'm still there. Yeah, I, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter too, but I don't know. It's a weird. I don't know anymore. I don't know anymore. Anything, you know, if you're listening to this, you're one of our faithful you listeners, are. and we just just we appreciate keep it. listening to us. Subscribe. Yeah. It'll pop up on your feed when we feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> we we won awards for this. <laughs> We're still good at it. We just don't have time no, anymore. No, it's true. It's true we don't. But uh, yeah, so keep listening and uh, thank you. And let's hope 2023 is, is good to all of us. Bye.